Millions of people around the world suffer from addiction, and only a small percentage ever get help. And this time of year can be especially tough for people who struggle with substance abuse. Joining us today are Heidi Wallace and Carrie Bates with Hazelden Betty Ford, a nonprofit treatment center, to talk about addiction, treatment, and recovery. From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. The holidays are all around us. You can't walk down the street, walk into a store, or go online without seeing signs of a season. For a lot of people, it's a time to be joyous, a time to celebrate. But for others, it can be a time of isolation, loneliness, and despair. For people with substance abuse issues, it can trigger overconsumption or relapse. Of all the substances that are abused, alcohol is still the number one killer. According to the World Health Organization, alcohol is responsible for one in every 20 or 5% of deaths worldwide. In this week's episode of Straight Talk, we talk to experts in the field from the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, the nation's leading nonprofit addiction treatment provider, and this year it's celebrating 70 years of saving lives. They join us here in Straight Talk to offer help and hope. Welcome to my guest, Heidi Wallace. She's the Director of Oregon Operations for the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation. She has more than two decades of experience in the addiction treatment field and has worked in both residential and outpatient settings as well as in private practice. We're also joined by Carrie Bates. She's the Community Outreach Representative in Oregon for Hazelden Betty Ford. Her career in the treatment field began in 2013 after her own personal battle with addiction. Before that, she had a sales and marketing career at Nike after her own successful athletic career as a three-time Olympic gold medalist swimmer in the 1984 Summer Olympics. She'll share her story of recovery. Welcome to Straight Talk. It's great to have you both here. Thank, Thank you for having us. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis, but as I mentioned, alcohol is still the number one problem when it comes to substance abuse. So let's talk about that a little bit more and why this time of year can be especially hard for a lot of folks. And we'll start with Heidi. Absolutely. You know, if you just look at the state of Oregon, the death rate for alcohol-related um, deaths has increased 34% just in the last five years. And so, you know, that's a really important statistic and that this is not a problem that's going away, even though so, so much emphasis has been on the opioid epidemic, which absolutely has been a huge problem. Uh, but definitely during the holidays, you're starting to see this is a vulnerable time. You know, people, it's a time where people have these expectations of it being so much like in a Hallmark movie, you know, in a lot of ways. And um, there's a lot going on and there are wonderful celebrations and a lot to celebrate at this time of year with family. But for those inflicted with this disease, it can be a really difficult time. Um, there's alcohol all over the place, a lot of parties where alcohol is served. Um, but more importantly, it's more hidden than that. It's being isolated, it's being in your home and not being around other people um, that can actually be more triggering um, for individuals. There's a lot of shame, there's a lot of stigma, and this time of year can be really stressful. Carrie, do you want to speak stressful. to that? Yeah, I think this year, this time of year can be especially difficult for those of us that suffer with substance use disorder um, because many of us are estranged from our family if, um, if we're far enough in our disease. You know, our families um, set up boundaries and don't want us around as often when we're um, in our addiction. So the holidays, just um, that intensity of the isolation and loneliness gets 
um, much worse at this time of year, for sure. Let's take a look at some statistics about alcohol-related deaths. And you spoke to this, Heidi, an estimated 88,000 people, approximately 62,000 men and 26,000 women die from alcohol-related causes annually. And that makes alcohol the third leading preventable cause of death in the U.S. And then in Oregon, specifically in 2017, 1,923 Oregonians, or 40 per 100,000 population, died from alcohol-related causes. And as you mentioned, Heidi, that represents a 34% increase in the overall rate of alcohol-related deaths since 2001. And Heidi, you told me that women and alcoholism is on the rise. Absolutely. The last, um, when you look at specifically women, um, and actually it's women, um, Caucasian women that are college-educated are the highest rate. And in fact, if you were to look at a graph, it's going up like this. Um, but if you just look at all women, it's gone up something about around 136, 138 percent. Wow. That's a large increase um, over the last 10 years. So um, there's lots of theories of why that may be. And those theories are not as relevant as the fact that it's actually happening. And you are starting to see the sales and marketing to that. So a lot of the wine bottles are marketed to women. So you can see a lot of the brands are changing their marketing strategy to women because women are the um, becoming as much of a consumer as men are with alcohol. And um, you hear of the play dates and you hear of these things that would have maybe never happened 10 to 15 years ago um, that are happening with alcoholic consumption. And so um, definitely women are the, the large risk factor. And I don't see that going down. I mean, we provide treatment every day, and it's men and women, but women, it, it, we're full all the time. And that um, brings us to your story, Carrie, yes. because people may hear your story, three-time gold medalist, mm -hmm. you had a successful career at Nike, and think, um, you had the world by the tail. How mm -hmm. could she struggle? Tell us about your journey. You know, um, people ask me that all the time. You know, how, how was it that you lost control of this thing? Um, when you seem to have control over your life in general. And, um, and I, did, I did maintain control over it um, in my own head for a while. And then the sicker I got, the less control I had over it. And um, I, I think for me also, um, and I think in general, women get um, sicker a little later in life. And it also happens very, very quickly. My disease was very fast and very um, severe. So when I started drinking alcoholically to the time that I ultimately got sober and my, my stops in treatment in between those years was a fairly short amount of time, um, which is very common for women. And you said you went to treatment, I think you said four times. I did. What was the biggest obstacle for you to getting sober? I think the biggest obstacle for me getting sober was a lot of that mindset that I had had as an athlete um, and also the mindset of I didn't, it, the shame and guilt of all of it. I didn't really want people to know my secret, even though people knew my secret. Um, for me to be able to um, act as if and be the person that people thought I was was so important that I hid and hid and hid my alcoholism until I couldn't hide it anymore. So by the time I finally sought treatment, I was at a, a pretty low bottom. My secret was out, but I was so full of shame and guilt because not only was I not what everyone thought I was, but I was also a mom of two beautiful girls. And as a mom, it's very, very difficult when you struggle with it. To At this your lowest disease. point, how much were you drinking? Um, I was drinking a lot. 
I was drinking a lot of um, wine happened to be my um, my drug of choice within alcohol and I drank a lot um, towards the end of my disease I drank in the mornings um, to avoid getting sick uh, I drank in the during the day um, and there was a time towards the end that I really didn't know if it was night or day outside unless I looked outside my blinds. That's how much the disease had taken control of my life. And the feelings that Carrie talked about, is that a common theme? Absolutely. We see the same story every day. I mean, not everybody, I mean, sometimes there's this misconception um, that everybody has to hit kind of this place that, you know, Carrie is describing. Some people don't have to get to that point. They have something that's significant in their life that happens and they get treatment and they move on. But Carrie's story is not unique. You know, unfortunately, right. um, we hear that story every day and uh, the shame is the common theme that we often hear and that's really the stigma. And that's not just the shame that we put upon ourselves, but it's the stigma that comes from outside. It's an external stigma of why can't you just stop? Is that getting any better, the stigma? I, I like to believe it is. I mean, I, I, I think it is. I think we both think that, you know. I think the opioid crisis has opened up a lot of doors and windows and eyes to this disease um, and that it doesn't discriminate. It doesn't, it doesn't care what you've accomplished in life. It doesn't, it, it doesn't care about any of those things. And so um, I think, I believe we're getting there. You know, Hazel and Betty Ford does a lot in terms of advocacy. Um, because we're a nonprofit, we are continually going out and trying to get the message out there to reduce stigma and advocate for more people. So that's it, our mission, you know. <laughs> How does, um, you know, we hear a lot about denial. How does someone know they have a problem? Somebody listening now, how would they know? How would their families know? Most people know there's a problem. I mean, you can probably, the families know to the, that there's a problem. They're just scared or they're in their own shame around it, or they've come accustomed to the ways that it's been and they've normalized this, or that's just mom, that's just dad. Um, so they create a normalization and work around it, which makes it even, the longer that goes on, the harder it is to change. Because um, everybody has to change. So often people go to treatment and they go, oh, they're changing. And really the whole system has to change in order for that sobriety, to, you know, long-term recovery to happen. But the denial is really, it's, a, it's, a, it's small. So I don't even call it denial. I call it these, you're starting to see signs, but you just keep going, justify. So justification, rationalizing my behavior, all of those things, if people are doing that, arguing against change as other people are starting to tell you this is a problem. Um, if it's not a problem and you tell somebody this is a problem, you just stop, you go, oh, okay. You know, it's not that as big of a deal, but when it is a problem, you wanna defend it. You know, you wanna be like, no, this is who I am. This is part of who I am. I don't know any different. And really that comes from fear. A lot of that is fear and, and scared. And the families, you said you have two beautiful daughters. I this do. is a journey for the family as well. Absolutely. It's not just my recovery, it's, it's my, my girls too. Um, you know, by the time I got sober, um, the girls had been through a lot. I had put them through a lot. Going to treatment four times in a two year period of time, uh, it, it's impossible for that not to affect your children. And so they had been through a lot. So it took a long time, even in my recovery, for them to learn to trust and believe and understand recovery. 
and then they were able to kind of move into their own recovery from the damage that had been done to them as, as younger girls. Mm -hmm. So it, it is absolutely a family disease. And, you know, it's interesting. I was once told early in my recovery that you know you have a problem when it becomes a problem for the people that love you. Mm -hmm. So because we, as the ones that are afflicted with the substance use disorder, because it centers in our brain, we don't have the ability to really rationally understand that we have this disease. So we have to lean on the people that are closest to us to tell us we see a problem happening here because we don't have the ability. And then towards the end of our disease, towards the end of my disease, I had completely lost the ability to make choices. The disease was making all of those choices for me. I was not making those. And, and recovery is not just about getting the alcohol or substance no. out of your body, right? It, it's a lot more than that. Absolutely. And that's probably the part that's most exciting for people that do, like, you know, Carrie and I, we work in treatment, but I know for both of us that it's about recovery, you know, advocating for people to stay in long-term recovery and those outcomes and bringing those families together. That's why we go to work every day. That's why we do this work. Treatment is just a teeny piece of it. Um, and abstaining from drugs and alcohol isn't recovery, actually, because the alcohol and drugs changes how you feel. It changes how you think. It changes how you interact with people. Um, your personality changes. And so getting sober, you know, just taking the drugs and alcohol is not enough. There's a whole process of therapy that goes with that in recovery um, that really changes you and become you become a better person out of it you know I really admire people in long-term recovery it's they inspire me every day so and I know the sobriety date for you is a big celebration it is yes my sobriety date um, in our house is arguably more, more important than my own birthday because it was the day that I truly was able to have a new life um, and it was the day my kids got their mom back and so it's a it's a special day for and us. And that's February first, February first, two thousand twelve. Two thousand twelve. Yeah. Um, Heidi, if people are listening and they feel like they want help or a family member wants to help someone, what's available? Well, the best thing to do, I mean, definitely a resource for us is our um, website because our website has more than just how do you get treatment, you know, an 800 number. There's a lot of information on research. There's publications um, and such that are there, but people going to our website, we have an 800 number. All of those are really important. Locally, there's um, Lines for Life. That's a great um, resource as well. Um, so yeah, just getting, picking up the phone, but there's also recovery meetings all over the Portland metro area. So there are free things. You there's don't have to have a lot things. of money. No, Insurance can pay for some of it. Yeah, too. I mean, 95% of the people coming to our treatment center are using their insurance and in network. So the cost to treatment, it's, it's there. There's, um, there, you, we're removing those barriers every day. I want to so. show some of the ways that things have changed over 70 years yes. at yes. Hazelden and Betty Ford. Let's take a look at 1949 when uh, the foundation was established. One counselor, one patient, <laughs> you only use the 12 steps, mm -hmm. 28 days of residential care, treating only men with yep. alcoholism and no insurance. Today, 70 years later, 1,400 employees, 17 sites. You see 20,000 patients a year. 12 steps is included with clinical therapies and medicine, multiple levels of care, variable lengths of engagement, individualized care for all genders and substances. Mm -hmm. And as you mentioned, Heidi, 95% of patients utilize insurance. So you've come a long way. We have, we have, and the industry has come a long way, but there's so much further we can go. And um, there's still, people are relapsing at, you know, alarming rates. And there's still more that we can do to get the research and um, especially the medicines. You know, there's still, there's medicines out there to help people, but 
there's a long way we can go with the medication to help and the therapies and what's most effective for, because what works for one person doesn't always work for another person. And that's, when you mentioned the individualized treatment, so important. You know? And tell us about your Oregon facility. Where is that? So we have a um, residential treatment center in Newburgh, Oregon. It's 95 beds. We provide residential day treatment with housing. Um, we have on-site mental health services. We have a family program, all of that for adults. Um, we also, in Beaverton, have an outpatient program. And so it's right off of 217 off of Denny Road. And we do um, intensive outpatient, outpatient mental health. Um, we do do it for people that have a DUI. Um, in the state of Oregon, it, it, you are required to do 90 days of, at minimum of treatment. And a lot of people will go through our outpatient program in Beaverton. And then we have a third location up that we just opened up in May in Bellevue, Washington, that we're really excited about. So continuing to expand um, in the Pacific Northwest has been so wonderful. So you serve the whole Pacific Northwest we viewers do. and Southwest Washington listening can absolutely treatment here. Absolutely. So much more to talk about. And I, I want to ask you both and, and hear from Carrie too. What does life look like on the other side of recovery for individuals battling addiction and for their families? A message of hope and healing and more on how you can get help. Now back to our guests from the Hazelden Betty Ford Foundation, Heidi Wallace and Carrie Bates. Thanks again for being here. Thank you. I want to touch on marijuana for a moment because it's becoming more mainstream as more and more states legalize. And a lot of people turn to cannabis compounds to relieve depression mm -hmm. and anxiety. Heidi, is there evidence that marijuana products help with mental health? You know, to date, there has been a lot of different research on this, but none of them have really found effectiveness that this is actually decreasing or having an impact on the mental health. And, um, you know, in Australian, you know, research, they looked at 83 different research projects and none of them, they, could, they couldn't conclusively say, no, this is really effective. And, um, and at working in addiction and mental health. So we work in the business of both co-occurring disorders and I can't even bring myself to even imagine saying, you, you know, to use this substance to um, mitigate those, you know, depression and anxiety. Because there are other effective medications and cognitive behavioral therapy that are effective and the research is out there. So I'm always saying go with that one, the researched one first. And you do do uh, both of those with mental, you help people with mental health issues mm -hmm. and with, with addiction problems. You know, we talked about alcoholism in our first segment and opioids get a lot of attention too. And people may think that meth is a thing of the past, but there's a new variety of methamphetamine mm -hmm. that's ravaging some communities. And a recent report from the Office of National Drug Control Policy says meth is the number one drug threat in Oregon. Mm -hmm. Deaths related to the use of methamphetamine have skyrocketed in Oregon from 50 in 2008 to 412 deaths in 2017. Mm -hmm. What are you seeing at Hazelden Betty Ford when it comes to meth? We are absolutely seeing the same thing. So the hard thing about treating meth is that meth, we don't have the um, pharmacological interventions that we do with opioids and um, alcohol where there's anti-craving medications, we can help, um, and that doesn't exist for methamphetamines. And so it's a really difficult drug to treat. Um, from that perspective, it's also difficult because it, it, it literally eats away at the entire inside of your body. It changes you physically, it changes your mind, um, and we are seeing an increase. So we know that as an in, in the industry, at the downer was, you know, the opioids was a downer, that's what they call it, and, and methamphetamines is an upper. So we do see this trend happen, um, and that's exactly what we're seeing. And another part of that is we're seeing an increase in um, IV 
methamphetamines. So where usually that takes some time to get into the IV drug use um, culture, um, that's happening more quickly and more, um, it's really scary, it's sad. And you know, as a drug and alcohol therapist by trade, um, it's hard to see this come back from the late 90s, early 2000s when we saw it really um, mm -hmm. happen, especially in the state. Let's Absolutely. talk about something hopeful yes. about recovery. <laughs> you've, you've been sober for several years now. What does that look like? What is the hope and the promise, the beauty that you found in recovery? Yeah, you know, um, people people can describe recovery, but until you experience it yourself, you can't believe that a life like that can actually exist. Um, I think for me, once I finally got into recovery, I got sober and started living a life in recovery. It finally. Um, I became the woman that I was always supposed to be. Um, I, I work in this field now, which um, is exactly where I'm supposed to be because I have a passion for what I do. But most importantly, it really helped um, shape who I am, not just as a person, but as a mom, as a friend, as a wife. You know, all the things that, that I wasn't getting right before. Recovery has taught me how to live not just clean and sober, but how to live with grace and dignity and not be ashamed of who I am. I think part of that stigma that you asked about earlier earlier, has started to go away because more and more people are talking about this. Mm -hmm. And I'm not gonna hide in my recovery. I hid in my addiction, I hid in my home and I drank alone. And I'm not gonna hide as a recovering woman because I'm, I'm incredibly proud. And I, and I told you this when we spoke earlier, I've been a part of a lot of big teams in my life and I've participated in a lot of big events in my life, but none of which, um, short of have the birth of my children, I'm more proud of than to be a woman in recovery. So there is a life waiting for, for us in recovery that we just can't imagine when we're sick. Heidi, what, what drew you to this field? What, what did you see that, that attracted you to treatment? people like Carrie, you know? Um, when I, I was in my early 20s when I went into this field, which is a pretty young for most people, and people were coming, I worked at OHSU and in their behavioral health clinic, and people were coming in and they were far better human beings than myself. And I just went, what have you, you've been through so much and you've struggled, and, and I'm sitting here on the other side going, I'm not as self-actualized, I'm not even close to as good of a human being as you are because you've gone through this recovery. So it really attracted me to want, I wanna be part of that, I wanna help people. I wanna know what the secret agent, <laughs> that they, they, these people become, they're of service. They're, you know, they really foster what honesty is because they had the, they lied so much for so long, it's now they're on the other end of it. And too often people can get in there every day and go, oh, I said a little white lie there. And for a recovering person, there are no little white lies. That's a really big deal. So to really work with those individuals and see that they just bring so much good into this world is just, it inspires me every day, so. Well, if this strikes a chord with you, we wanna give you those numbers again for help. The Hazelden Betty Ford number is 1-866-278-7235. And we also have Lines for Life, their 24-hour helpline if you or someone you know is struggling with mental illness, thoughts of suicide, that's a different number, 1-800-273-8255. And also the website has a lot of information, pamphlets, book, research on uh, this, address is www.hazeldenbettyford, all one word, hazeldenbettyford.org. Just a short time left, but I wanna have a final word from you, Carrie, about recovery, what you wanna leave people with. 
Um, what I hope to leave everybody with is if you're struggling, um, ask for help. Reach your hand out. There's a lot of resources available for you. Um, there's people that will answer the other, you know, that, that, that phone call. And, and don't let shame and guilt uh, keep you from making that call. Yeah. Just 20 seconds for a final thought, Heidi. It's actually right on this, and we didn't even plan this, which is it's the holidays, and you think that the, uh, you can't be away from your family to go to treatment. The best gift you can actually give your family is to get the help that you need and that they, so they can heal. Mm -hmm. Well, you both have been very inspiring. Thank you so much, Heidi Wallace, Carrie Bates, for being here on Straight Talk, and happy holidays to you. Too. And thank you so much for watching and listening. Don't forget to download our new podcast. Here is that QR code again. Or download our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for KGW Straight Talk. We'll see you next week for Straight Talk. Have a great week and happy holidays.